Conversations. Good day, everybody. You've tuned into Med Conversations, and today we're talking about DKA and the different types of diabetes. I'm joined by the lovely Rebecca. Hi, everyone. So basically, we'll take and you. This th- is Darvel. I'm Darvel, yeah. <laughs> so we'll take you through the a, a presentation of DKA, which is a very common presentation of type one diabetes, as you probably know. And then we'll just briefly talk about the difference between type one and type two, and a couple of other different types of diabetes as well. And we'll put in an early disclaimer here that we're talking about DKA management in adults, not in children. So if you're looking after children, look elsewhere for your information. Absolutely, it's really important. So presentation, Katie is an 18-year-old girl without any past history who comes in with nausea and vomiting and abdominal pain. Sensibly, at first, a surgical cause is suspected, but the surgeons come along with their magic hands, press on the belly and declare there's nothing that can be fixed with a scalpel. On examination, you're the doctor looking after her in ED, and she looks very unwell. You're very worried about her. Her systolic blood pressure is 90, which she is a young girl, but still, that is low, and she's tachycardic with a heart rate of 110. You can't see a JVP even when she's lying completely flat, and you notice that she's breathing deeply as if she's almost hungry for air. Hungry for air, like air hunger. Mm. And when you lean close, you're surprised to smell a fruity odour. So Katie's presentation here actually ticks a lot of boxes for DKA. She's got nausea, vomiting and lethargy, which is a very common presenting symptoms. And she's got these background symptoms of polyuria, polydipsia and weight loss, which are very suggestive of uh, diabetes. And then she's got a lot of signs as well. She's very dehydrated. Um, She's... uh, she can't see her JVP, her blood pressure's low, her, she's tachycardic, and then she's also got a few signs of ketosis. So That, that Kussmaul breathing. So that's what the air hunger I was getting to there, that Kussmaul breathing is the uh, ponymous name there. And the fruity odour, what could that be? So that's ketones on the breath. Yeah, exactly. I actually I actually know someone who went in, a nurse who went into DKA while, or was very hyperglycemic while at, at work, and people thought that she'd been drinking alcohol because... That's almost what it smelled like. Oh, really? Wow. They thought it was champagne. Mm. And then she passed out. Oh, there you go. And then she <laughs> Still had consistent <laughs> with alcohol intoxication. People were judging her. <laughs> so this isn't really the case here, but if someone comes in with a known history of type 1 diabetes and then they're clearly in DKA, what do you need to look for, Beck? So, so really anyone who comes in with hyperglycemia without a clear cause, even without DKA, you need to make sure that there's not a reason for it um, in the form of an infection. Even if they're not presenting with a fever, you need to delve a little bit more deeply. Yeah, make sure you do a proper septic screen. And then you've got to think about why have they potentially skipped their insulin. There's lots of kind of social factors around type 1 diabetes in particular. Do they maybe have an eating disorder? Insulin makes you put on a lot of weight. And they, are they worried about that? Is there some other kind of mental health disorder that's making them non-compliant with their insulin or is there maybe an unstable psychosocial environment so it is really important to think about that kind of stuff because there's issues there that if you resolve you can potentially make a big difference to their health so a quick word on the pathophysiology of dka if i may it's basically a relative or absolute insulin deficiency and too much glucagon in relation to that insulin so that creates lots of things that means you've got gluconeogenesis in the liver you've got glycogenolysis and you've got ketone body formation in the liver so all of that happens in the liver and then peripherally you've got impaired glucose uptake into skeletal muscle and fat and reduced intracellular glucose metabolism so all of this is resulting in lots of glucose in the blood 
And then you've got fatty acids released from adipocytes, and ketones are made from these in the liver rather than the triglycerides and very low-density lipoproteins you get in kind of a normal, healthy body. And then the end point of all this is you've got acidosis, uh, which develops as the bicarb buffer uh, runs out. So what would you do for KD test-wise, Beck? So I'd want to do a BSL, and I would do both a an indicative VBG or a um, capillary test as well as doing a formal BSL in the serum. Obviously, run FBE, UEC, ABG, and I'd look for ketones. Yeah. So in Katie's case, her BSL is 22. Her FBE is 120 uh, red blood cells, white cell count of 18, and platelets of 200. Her UEC show a sodium of 130, a potassium of 6.2, urea of 12, and creatinine of 100. And the ABG shows a pH of 7.2 with CO2 of 30 and bicarb of 14. And uh, ketones are three. So for those of you playing at home, that sounds like a lot of numbers, but we're going to go through classic findings for each of those. Yeah. All right. So first of all, glucose. What kind of range do you expect to see in diabetes uh, ketoacidosis? So it doesn't, interestingly, it doesn't necessarily have to be very high. So anything from about 13.9 up to 33 is typical. Yeah, that's a really important point. You can't rule. You still have to test the ketones, even if they're slightly high. Sodium is um, typically 125 to 135 when you test it in the UECs. And that's for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because their total body stores of sodium are low. They've been vomiting. Um, sometimes they've got diarrhea and things as well. And then also there's something called pseudo-hyponatremia because sometimes the glucose is so high that it creates this false reading of sodium that um, makes it lower than it actually is. But the really important point to remember with sodium is you're more relieved if it's within... Uh, a little bit low if it's 125 to 135 with 135 to 145 being the normal ranges because once it starts getting to the normal ranges what are you really worried about Beck? You're worried about whether it is actually lower than that and it's it's indicative of a severe volume depletion. Yeah exactly. Normal sodium is a very worrying sign in decay or can be a worrying sign. Uh, Moving on to potassium so usually when someone presents what's the potassium? It will appear to be high so the potassium that you're testing is the extracellular potassium. Mm. But even though the extracellular potassium seems high, the total body potassium is deplete. So it's high because they're in acidosis and the potassium is pushed out of cells into the extracellular fluid. But really because they're vomiting, um, because they've got urinary loss due to um, high osmolality and because their body is reacting to the low volume with high aldosterone, which secretes potassium as well, their actual body potassium is low in DKA. So moving on to creatinine, what would you expect to see there in DKA? So it's often slightly high. Yeah, so creatinine and urea are both kind of slightly high. Often they're just a little bit dehydrated. The osmolality, as we've said, is high, so a little bit higher than normal with um, 300 to 320 I think normal is 280 to 300 or so. Um, plasma ketones, we talked about that. That's a really important part of the pathophysiology in DKA. What do you see there? So somewhat unsurprisingly, ketones are elevated. So the important point with ketones and DKA is there's actually two types of ketones. There's beta-hydroxybutyrate, and then there's also uh, acetoacetate. So acetoacetate is what you typically see in starvation, and that's preferentially detected uh, when you do a urinary ketones. But in DKA, you're actually looking for beta 
hydroxybutyrate. So the urine test for ketones isn't that good, and the serum test is much, much better. So make sure you actually get a serum ketones. Bicarb in DKA patients, spec. So often it's low, less than 15. Yeah, so that fits with the metabolic acidosis they get. So the acidosis results in a low pH of 6.8 to 7.3 that you'll see on the ABG. And uh, what would you expect in the CO2? So I'd expect some respiratory compensation, so so around 20 to 30. And when you calculate the anion gap on the ABG, as you dutifully do, is that going to be raised or normal? It will be raised, and, and that's because it fits into those four things in the very much abridged um, mnemonic for remembering the causes of a um, increased anion gap metabolic acidosis, to- left total knee replacement, so L being... Lactic acidosis. T. Toxins. K. Ketones, ketones which is DKA. And R for renal failure. Yeah. So just a couple of other brief points on um, laboratory findings in DKA. The white cell count is often elevated without an infection. So although you are suspicious for an infection, if, you, if you've ruled one out using other tests, don't be too worried if the white cell count is hovering around 20. That's not that uncommon. And also we've talked a lot about tests, but you have to look at the clinical symptoms as well. Exactly, yeah. All right, so moving on to management, there's three main pillars of DKA management. So that's fluid replacement is the first, potassium supplementation is the second, and last but certainly not least is low-dose IV insulin infusion, so insulin replacement. So let's talk about each of these. So in fluid replacement, how many litres of fluid is someone in DKA typically lost by the time they're presented to hospital? How much? How dehydrated is Katie? Classically, patients with DKA have lost three to six litres. I can't speak for Katie herself, but it's often useful to find out how much patients usually weigh and how much they weigh today. So the interesting thing here is once you replace their fluid, the blood glucose actually goes down without before you give them any insulin. So because you increase the urine perfusion, so you increase some of that um, glucose uh, excretion through the kidneys and their blood glucose goes down, down a little bit. Um, so potassium supplementation. So as we said, but they often present hyperkalemic because the potassium is pushed out of the cells, but their total body potassium is low. When do you replace potassium in someone with DKA? Because usually it's when someone's less than 3.5, but what about in DKA? What's your cutoff for replacing potassium? So it's actually 5 millimoles. So much, much higher than the rest of the population. So you've got to keep a close eye on that. Why is their um, potassium so low? We we talked about that briefly before um, because they've got osmotic diuresis in the, through the urine and they've also got hypovolemia induced hyperaldosteronism. So the third pillar was the IV insulin infusion. So what's the what's the starting dose? What do you do first? So you start off with zero point one units per kilogram in a bolus, and then you follow that by an infusion zero point one units per kilogram per hour. So it's actually quite easy to remember. Yeah. Yeah. And then, obviously, you don't just put all these things on a patient and then walk away and, and assume everything's going to be okay. So these patients are, are people with very kind of fragile electrolytes. So you've got to, you've got to monitor their glucose every couple of hours, and you should be monitoring their electrolytes every four hours. So the last kind of potential pillar that only some patients need is um, acidosis management. So if the pH is less than 6.9, then you give sodium bicarbonate, but not if the pH is any higher than that. When do you know you've won the battle of um, DKA? So so when the blood glucose is less than 11, then that's when you can stop, um, or sorry, change their IV fluids from normal saline to IV dextrose and halve their insulin infusion rate. 
The other things you're looking at as signs that you have one are a serum anion gap less than 12, serum bicarbonate greater than 18, and a pH greater than 7.3. Yeah. All right, so before we leave DKA, what's the big scary complication that we're all worried about? You might have noticed in that management that it's all actually pretty slow. Like you don't suddenly give them all the insulin that they need and you don't suddenly rehydrate them with three, four liters. You do everything quite gradually over 24 hours and then you're still quite cautious once you get to um, a BSL of less than 11. Why is that? Why are, we, why are we treading so softly in DKA? So the complication to watch out for is cerebral edema. So more common in children with DKA. So thankfully not an issue for adult doctors, but the mortality is very high, um, 25% or up to 25%, and it usually occurs in 24 hours of treatment. We don't really know why it happens, but it is associated with rapid excessive rehydration and really rapid insulin therapy. So that's something you really don't want to screw up because it can be very, very dangerous if you if you treat too aggressively. Which is what we think. The, as yeah. you said, it's, it's not proven at this stage. Yeah. But but you got, no you, harm in going softly. you got to be careful. All right, so that's DKA. Let's just briefly talk about what the definition of diabetes is and what the different types of diabetes are. So basically diabetes is defined by blood glucose, right? Everyone knows that. That makes sense. What's the different types of glucose we can do? We can do random glucose. We can do a glucose tolerance test and we can do a fasting plasma glucose. So that's eight hours after they last ate. And the other test uh, to look at glucose in the blood is something called HbA1c, which is a measure of glycolated hemoglobin. Glycosylated? I'm going to go glycolated hemoglobin gives you a three-month average of BSL. So if their sugar has been poorly controlled above seven or so, then their HbA1c will be eight, which is, you know, like a rough average. So the definition of diabetes mellitus, Rebecca, so what kind of fasting glucose would you expect to see in someone with true blue diabetes? So I remember it as 7-Eleven. So like seven, 7 is the cutoff for a fasting glucose. Anything above that is diabetes. Mm-hmm. Random glucose, anything above 11.1. So 7-11.1, how's that? <laughs> um, the HbA1c cutoff is 6.5, and the glucose tolerance test is the same as the random glucose. And then we've got this other type of pre-diabetes or impaired glucose homeostasis is the proper name. So there you've got a fasting glucose between 5.6 and 6.9. You've got a uh, random glucose between 7.8 and 11. And a HbA1c of 5.7 to 6.4%. All right, so there's, there's two types of diabetes. You might have heard of them, Rebecca. Type 1 and type 2 are the two main ones. So the... Type 1 diabetes is, is basically the result of complete complete or near-total insulin deficiency, so they don't have insulin. And type 2 diabetes is a bit more heterogeneous because you do see type 2 diabetes on a huge dose of insulin, so they probably don't have enough insulin as well. But the basic pathophysiology is uh, insulin resistance rather than a lack of insulin, and then that often leads to insulin deficiency. So you get variable degrees of insulin resistance, impaired insulin secretion, and increased glucose production. So type 1 diabetes, as we said, is an insulin deficiency, and that's because the destruction of pancreatic beta cells. And it most commonly occurs before 20 years of age, so that's what we're suspecting in Katie. The basic pathophysiology is autoimmune. So that's an important thing to remember because often it's associated with other autoimmune disorders. But uh, not all individuals have evidence of islet-directed autoimmunity, but it's assumed. 
pathophysiologies, there's a genetic predisposition, and then there's some kind of environmental trigger which makes the immune system go wild. Mm. Is the would you, which which would you expect um, is more genetic? Type one or type two? Which has a stronger family history element? Uh, it's actually type two. I would have expected type one, mm. but, but type two. Type two is the answer. I think that's a that's been an MCQ question in the past. So the the important point here is that the, there's quite a bit of functional reserve in the pancreas as there is in much of the rest of the body, and you don't really notice the symptoms di- symptoms of diabetes until your pancreas is pretty much gone. When seventy to eighty percent is gone, then you start getting the polyuria and the polydipsia and the weight loss and the fatigue and present with DKA. All right. So antibody wise, which antibodies are associated with type one diabetes? This is a a big issue in medicine, remembering all the different types of antibodies associated with different autoimmune conditions. But what are they in diabetes? So they're the islet cell antibodies. So there's anti-GAD65 and IA2. So they're the main ones, but there's a big group called islet cell antibodies. But all you really need to remember, all you put on the path slip when you suspect someone with type 1 diabetes is anti-GAD65 and IA2. So that's recommended in everyone with suspected type 1 diabetes. Everyone will get those screened. But do all people have antibodies? Is no, this a there's perfect a, test? about 15% of patients with type two, type 1 diabetes don't have any autoantibodies. And, and, and all, some, in, some in type 2. Exactly. So this becomes clinical again. We can't just give the test and say, yep, you've got type 1 diabetes. You've got to go in more in the clinical picture. Does it look more like they've got insulin resistance or does it look more like they have insulin deficiency? So then type 2 diabetes, as we said, is thought to be mostly insulin resistance uh, as the primary pathology, and then the other stuff develops. And you can't, you can't tell the difference just, because, just with the lack of antibodies because 5 to 10% will actually have antibodies in type 2. So other type of diabetes which are worth mentioning, I think, just briefly, there's gestational diabetes, which obviously occurs in pregnant women, and that's all I know because I heard pregnant women and then I stopped listening. <laughs> what are some of the, uh, what are some of the other ones? What's LADA? That's something you see written on admissions all the time. There's latent autoimmune diabetes of adults. It presents similarly to type 2, but they're circulating antibodies, and they patients with this progress to insulin dependence very quickly. Mm. And they often have a bit of a lower BMI than your typical type 2 obese uh, diabetes patient. And then there's also MODI, which is mature onset diabetes of the young, which sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, but it is a thing. It's... Um, Basically, what you suspect in non-obese patients, again, when there's a strong family history of diabetes and when they present before 25 years of age, but the difference with type 1 diabetes is back. The absence of autoantibodies. And also the really strong family history, which we said was, you know, there is a genetic predisposition, but it's not a huge part of type 1 diabetes that you've got a really strong family history. So then there's some other types of diabetes as well, which you might have come across. Bronze diabetes, which is... What, Beck? So that's the diabetes associated with hemochromatosis. Yeah, and then if you've got lots of pancreatitis and stuff, your your pancreas can just cark it. Pancreatitis and stuff, so chronic chronic pancreatitis, pancreatic insufficiency, secondary to something like uh, cystic fibrosis. And cut. That's all we have for you this week. That's um the start of diabetes, so DK and the different types. We're not going to leave it there. We'll do one on diabetic complications as well, and then we'll do one on common diabetic management quandaries as well. 
So you can be excited about that in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye.